five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of the Space Economy Podcast, we're going to get an update on space nuclear propulsion for human Mars exploration. The topic was the subject of the June 16th Future in Space Operations Teleconference. The presenter was Roger Myers, a consultant and formerly with Aerojet Rocketdyne. His presentation is based on the National Academy report, Space Nuclear Propulsion for Human Mars Exploration, created for NASA. Myers was the co-chair of the report. Listen in. Okay, I trust everybody has the charts. I was told that there's no screen sharing, so everybody's got the charts. Uh, and before I begin, I, of course, want to thank Dan and, and Harley for giving uh, me and the, the committee this opportunity to brief all of you on this, on, on this report that we, we did. It was published earlier this year. Uh, we've given this briefing before in other forums. Uh, <clears throat> and so some of you may have heard it before and maybe you're, you're primed with questions. I hope so. Um, the report is available for download from the National Academy's uh, website. So if you just Google the report title and the National Academies, uh, you will you will uh, get a link to a place where you can download the PDF of the full report, which is pretty extensive. And I'm just going to touch on the highlights of the report. So moving on to uh, chart two, I want to start by acknowledging uh, my co-chair first, uh, Bobby Braun of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Many of you may know of Bobby. Uh, he has a extensive history with our community, uh, working a lot on EDL and um, for Mars missions, um, amongst other things. Uh, and during this report, during this committee work, uh, he was in the middle of completing the integration of the Mars Perseverance rover and launching the Mars Perseverance, you know, leading that campaign to launch it and then land it on Mars. So he was a pretty busy guy while we were doing this project. Um, as you can see from the listing of committee members, it was a pretty diverse group of people, including experts from the Department of Energy, the nuclear industry, the Department of Defense, academia, and policy. Uh, Bavia Lal has now left the Science and Technology Policy Institute, and she's now at NASA headquarters. <clears throat> But during this report, when she was on this committee, <clears throat> she um, she was part of the STIPI team, and she had quite a bit, uh, a significant role in the past in uh, space nuclear systems policy development. Uh, and then, of course, we also had a couple of uh, retired or a retired um, expert in nuclear safety systems, um, and again. It was a it was a very diverse uh, and very experienced uh, committee. The process uh, that we used this took a year of work to do. I don't know how many of you have participated in National Academy of Sciences studies. 
but this was a consensus study. So uh, we went through and formed the committee. Um, and then we ended up, because of COVID, we ended up, of course, all of our meetings were virtual and we had 14 committee meetings, three hours each and five open sessions. Uh, so during the open sessions, and uh, we had um, presentations from the space nuclear propulsion community, including uh, NASA and industry. So we got a diverse set of inputs to uh, to support our work. And of course, the Department of Energy also uh, gave a couple of briefings uh, to us. So again, it was. Um, a lot of external input, uh, extensive literature reviews, ex uh, extensive meetings with people from around the country uh, working in this field. And uh, then we went into the committee deliberations and you know, established consensus positions, uh, lots and lots of discussions, as I'm sure you can imagine from that diverse committee group, um, drafted the report, uh, and then, you know, went through a series of edits and, and uh, review, external reviews uh, of the report uh, prior to completion of the report this February. I should also give plenty of credit to uh, Alan Engelman, who is the uh, National Academy of Sciences study director. So he coordinated and did a lot of, um, he really helped us write uh, a lot of the reports and help facilitate the discussions uh, during the meetings that, you know, with Bobby and myself. The, the three of us, Bobby, myself, and Alan had a lot of separate meetings from the, from the committee just to, just to make sure that we were on track and, and um, had a plan to get through various, uh, as you can imagine, disagreements and, and discussions that we, we had to get through. So uh, Harley asked about the statement of task or the, you know, the, the mechanism and who, who, what prompted this. Well, as many of you know, Congress for the last few years has been uh, mandating an investment in nuclear thermal propulsion uh, by law. And so NASA has been tasked, has been working on nuclear thermal propulsion for the last few years, a uh, program uh, led out of the Marshall Space Flight Center. And uh, the, the Space Technology Mission Directorate under Jim Reuter has, you know, recognized a few years ago that they really needed an independent, uh, non-advocate assessment of the relative. Was there, is there a question? Sorry, I just heard. Uh, okay. Um, of the relative merits or relative challenges, it wasn't the relative merits, but what what were the key characteristics for nuclear thermal propulsion and nuclear electric propulsion for the human exploration of Mars? And they wanted this independent assessment done. And so STMD uh, gave us, so NASA headquarters gave us a statement of task, which was to to look at the primary technical and programmatic challenges. I'm on chart four. Um, I apologize, I have not been uh, helping people track me. So I'm on chart four. Um, look at the primary technical and programmatic challenges, merits, and risks of 
NTP and NEP with the characteristics listed on this chart. So NTP had to have a specific impulse of at least 900 seconds and hydrogen propellant per the statement of task of at least 2,500 Kelvin. And we quickly determined as a committee that actually that was incorrect, and then NASA agreed with us, that the hydrogen to achieve 900 second specific impulse actually needs to be at 2,700 Kelvin. And that turns out to be very important for the material uh, required, the, the nuclear fuel required in the reactor. The nuclear fuel, of course, has to be at a higher temperature than the, you know, to get the heat transfer you need. So the, what's called the, well, the temperature differential between the nuclear fuel and the hydrogen itself is typically a couple hundred degrees Kelvin, might be a little lower, uh, but couple hundred degrees. So we're looking at 2,900 to 3,000 Kelvin for the for the nuclear fuel to heat the hydrogen to 2,700 Kelvin. Um, on the nuclear electric side, the power level had to be at least one megawatt electric. And the mass to power ratio, which is a key parameter for nuclear electric propulsion systems, had to be substantially lower than the current state of the art. And in the report, you'll see that we set that at about 20 or a target of about 20 uh, kilograms per kilowatt electric in order to successfully achieve the mission. So for each of these technologies, again, we have to identify the, the Sorry, there's a lot of background noise. Somebody's not on mute. Um, and again, if there are any questions, don't hesitate to interrupt me uh, with a question. So again, for each of these technologies, we were asked to identify the primary technical and programmatic challenges, merits, and risks, the key milestones and top-level development and demonstration roadmaps. So we actually created roadmaps. and. Other and also to assess other missions that might be enabled by each of these technologies. And so I'll talk about each of these as, as we go through. But to make sure that, oh, sorry, there was one other set of parameters and that's on chart five. So now moving on to chart five. Um, the baseline mission that we were asked to evaluate is an opposition class mission. So we did not, we were in fact specifically asked not to do any trades. We, we didn't do any trades for different types of missions or anything like that. We were asked to consider the opposition class mission with a 2039 launch. The total mission duration that we were given was less than 750 days. We were told to assume separate cargo and crewed vehicles. So cargo would be in place before the crew would launch. And we were also told to assume assembly in orbit in either LEO or cislunar space. And uh, so this, the, the um, graphic on the right-hand side of chart five just illustrates what that mission looks like. It's a, uh, you know, on day zero, you depart Earth, get to Mars after two, 217 days, you're on on the sur surface of Mars only 30 days, and then you take 403 days to return. And there's a Venus flyby on your return. Again, 
we, you know, the, you had a bunch of engineers uh, on the committee, and so we kept wanting to go back and say, oh, this isn't the right mission. And and we had to, you know, Bobby, myself, and Alan kept having to say, no, this is the mission that we were given to evaluate. And actually, from a propulsion challenges perspective, it's it's a pretty good mission to look at because if you look at chart six, where we plot the mission delta V, the required uh, velocity change, total velocity change versus Earth departure year, you see that the 2039 mission has a total delta V of over 10 kilometers per second, which when you compare across other mission opportunities for the Mars synodic period, uh, it actually encompasses like 80% of them, which means that a propulsion system that can do the opposition class mission in 2039 can do a lot of other mission opportunities. And these are just the opposition class missions. The conjunction class missions, as I'm sure most of you are well aware, uh, are much easier than this, have much lower delta V than this. And so by picking the 2039 opportunity, you're picking one that challenges the propulsion system and will enable a large number of other uh, mission opportunities. So that it, it made sense to pick this one, even if it's not the ultimate selection, because again, it challenges the propulsion in a, in a good way. So there are lots of backup opportunities is the point. Okay, so moving on now to chart seven, just in order to make sure that we're all on the same page, the nuclear thermal propulsion system is much like a chemical rocket, but you replace the combustion chamber with the reactor. And so, and, and instead of having multiple fuel tanks, you've got one big tank of liquid hydrogen or a whole bunch of little tank of smaller tanks of liquid hydrogen, or actually in this case, a whole bunch of very big tanks of liquid hydrogen uh, because of the challenge for the opposition class mission. But Either way, you have a single propellant. The liquid hydrogen is stored at 20 Kelvin. Uh, there's a propellant management system that then uh, sends the propellant down through the reactor. The reactor is started, heated as the hydrogen is coming through. You heat the hydrogen to 2,700 Kelvin, pass it then through the nozzle, and you get the 900-second uh, specific impulse. Again, in order to achieve that, temperature for the liquid for the hydrogen uh, and achieve the ISP, you've got to heat the reactor fuel to probably 2,900 Kelvin. All of this, of course, has to be done fairly quickly. You have to start the reactor, uh, get it hot, get it up to temperature uh, very quickly uh, in order to make sure that your burn average specific impulse achieves the mission required 900 seconds. So it's a, it's a significant challenge. NERVA, the, the NERVA engine, again, lots of testing with HEU, uh, NTP systems, nuclear thermal propulsion systems back in the uh, 60s and up until 1972. Um, lots of testing. None of them achieved these, uh, these characteristics. There were, and there were significant challenges still remaining. 
but they did build a lot of hardware and they did test, um, you know, you might say engineering model systems. They were far from flight systems, um, but they identified lots of the issues that need to be addressed. And again, the reactor is going to have the, on the right-hand side, it's going to have control drums, it's going to have a reflector, it's going to have the pressure vessels, um, and that those control drums have to have a control system in order to start and, and operate and make sure the, op, the uh, reactor operates stably. So now, again, just to make any questions so far? No? Okay. So moving on now to the NEP system, there have been no comparable system level tests. Uh, with nuclear electric propulsion, uh, as was done on the, in the NERVA, the rover NERVA program back in the 60s and, and early 70s. And so here we have a, only a schematic of, of the system. Uh, and the key message of this schematic is that NEP systems require the uh, operation, this, the, the integrated operation of multiple subsystems. So on the left-hand side of chart eight, you have um, the reactor, there's a shield, uh, you have a power conversion system, which takes the heat uh, from the reactor and generates electrical power. Um, you have a heat rejection system, large radiators uh, to reject what is probably going to be 60 to 70 percent or maybe a little more of the uh, total thermal energy produced by the or thermal power produced by the reactor. Then that electrical power uh, needs to be distributed and managed. And so you have a PMAD system, power management and distribution. And that feeds the electric propulsion system, or subsystem, I should say, where you have some kind of an, inter, an electric, a power processing unit that provides the interface between the PMAD and the electric thrusters. And you also, of course, have a propellant supply for the electric propulsion system and some kind of a flow control system. Um, so, again, you have multiple subsystems here. And, and I would say you do, you also have multiple subsystems with NTP, but it's a much simpler system. Um, and so you don't have nearly the complexity with the nuclear thermal that you do with the nuclear electric. Um, uh, moving on to chart nine, unless there, are there any questions? Okay. Uh, moving, sorry, a question? No? Okay, uh, so moving on to chart nine, just to summarize the system requirements and characteristics, on the left-hand side, we looked at an NTP system, 900 seconds specific impulse, 25,000 pounds of thrust per engine, total operating time of about four hours with six to eight restarts. The reactor thermal power we looked at was about 500 megawatts thermal, and as we've discussed, the propellant the, the uh, propellant at the reactor exit was 2,700 Kelvin, and you had to store the liquid hydrogen at 20 degrees Kelvin. Now, one of the really important things about this, of course, is that you have to store that liquid hydrogen for the entire duration of the in-space assembly. The mission to Mars, the stay at Mars, and there still has to be plenty of liquid hydrogen to get home. 
So it ends up, you end up having to store liquid hydrogen with minimal loss for probably up to three years. Then moving over to the right-hand side of this chart nine, uh, the nuclear electric propulsion summary, the specific impulse is for the EP, for the electric propulsion side is probably, is gonna be greater than 2000 seconds. The electric power is going to be one to two megawatts electric. That's the system that we looked at. Specific mass, as I mentioned earlier, less than 20 kilograms per kilowatt electric. And a big difference here between the NEP and NTP is that the operational lifetime, you're going to have to operate the system for probably something like four years. It's one to two years for thrust. So it's, you know, it's three to four years for power generation. The reactor thermal power, it's a much lower power system from a thermal perspective, three to 10 megawatts, but it has to run for many years, for several years. It's also much cooler. So instead of 2,700 Kelvin, it operates with an outlet temperature of about 1,200 Kelvin at a minimum. Um, on the propellant side, you have lots of options because there are various electric propulsion systems that could potentially be used. Um, depending on which, you know, what specific characteristics uh, there are. There are no electric propulsion systems today qualified for this power level, just like there are no nuclear thermal propulsion systems qualified at these, at these energies or power levels. Um, but the bottom line is you have several options that are listed there. The other thing that, of course, you need for the nuclear electric system is you need a supplemental chemical propulsion system in order to achieve the trip time. So on the NEP side, we were asked to evaluate uh, a power level of one to two megawatts electric. And in order to meet the trip time requirements, the 750-day total mission time, you have to move through the gravity wells of both the Earth when you're leaving the Earth and Mars when you arrive at Mars and come home and, and leave Mars faster then an NEP system at that power level can uh, can enable. So in order to achieve the mission requirements with this power level of, with this amount of electrical power, you have to have a supplemental chemical propulsion system for the deep gravity well uh, propulsion. And for that, we were told the baseline a liquid methane, liquid oxygen system with a specific impulse of 360 uh, Second and 25,000 pounds of thrust. Now, um, a lot of these characters, NASA had done and presented to the committee uh, mission analysis that showed that with these characteristics, you could the mission would close. Um, there were lots of challenges associated with on the NTP side launching enough liquid hydrogen because there's this particular mission opportunity is extremely challenging. So it's a lot of launches and a lot of in-space assembly. Uh, and on the NEP side, of course, it's a very large spacecraft because of the radiator area. So that's, those are the system characteristics that we are looking at. So now um, I'm gonna move on. Uh, chart 10 is just the title chart. I'm gonna talk about our findings and recommendations. Alvin Drew. Uh, sorry, what was that? Yeah. This is Alan from NASA headquarters. I've got a quick question on chart nine before you moved on. Uh, sure, go ahead. Yeah, just wanted to, just wondering if um, 
Would those two, NTP and NEP, be mutually exclusive? Or would it be impractical instead of using the chemical propulsion system to have used the NTP for the high thrust portions of the mission? Yeah, that wouldn't – the design of the system is really, really different. And so a reactor for power generation would not lend itself to a low-performance nuclear thermal rocket perspective. So, yeah, that's not – that would not be practical. At least I've never seen that proposed, and certainly the committee did not look at that potential option. Okay. Or even a second reactor that was optimized for nuclear thermal as your high thrust engine? You could. You could. Again, we were looking at the challenges of developing NTP and separately the challenges of developing NEP. And so, sure, if both are developed, you might choose to use both. So that is, I guess, certainly a possibility. It's not one that we – I mean, the report doesn't really, again, look at different mission architectures. It just looks at how – what are the challenges of developing NTP versus what are the challenges and timeframe of developing NEP. Whether or not you wanted to develop both of them and use them in combination, there have been some mission studies back in the SEI days from the 1990s that considered some of those options. But, you know, that was – that's kind of another level. That's an architecture-type discussion that we did not really get into. We were looking at the specific technology challenges for each of those. Great, great. Thanks so much. Okay. Happy to discuss that at some point, but the committee didn't really look at that because we were not tasked to look at different architectures. Any other questions on Chart 9 or any prior charts? Yeah, I have a question. This is Chris Seltzer from NASA Langley. I was just wondering if what the stress-to-weight ratio is you're looking at for NTP, and also if you look at sub-cooled propellant below 20 Kelvin for heat. No, we did not. We did not. Yeah, we did not look at sub-cooled propellant. The challenges – and maybe it's – yeah, we did not look at either of those things primarily because – on the thrust-to-weight ratio, again, we were not doing mission analysis. We were looking at the technology development challenges. So the mission analysis, there were presentations given to us that showed that the thrust-to-weight ratio was perfectly adequate for the NTP and for the NEP, for that matter, because they did the detailed trajectory and mission analysis to show that these characteristics would result in a feasible 2039 opposition class mission. The specific number for the thrust-to-weight, I can't remember what it was. I'm sure it was presented to us, but several different organizations did mission analysis, including Aerojet Rocketdyne. Russ Joyner gave us a great briefing. 
and I just can't remember what the vehicle weight was or even the NTP engine uh, weight was. I think we might have the NTP engine weight in the report, um, but I would encourage you to call Russ uh, Joiner. Again, that wasn't really the focus of this report. The focus of the report was what are the – is it feasible? Are either one of these even feasible to – to hit 2039, and what are the challenges that we face? What are what should be our priorities in terms of investment in these two technologies? Um, so that's really what we focused on. We didn't, we were not doing mission analysis. Okay, I was just asking because it kind of, I mean, if your dry weight, dry mass is too high, it doesn't even make sense to do nuclear thermal. Um, I mean, it's it's an equivalent, and also thrust to weight is kind of an equivalent. Um, Figure of merit to this, which you which you have for NET, but not for NTB. So, anyway, yeah, that's, and, that's and you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, and that's why we insisted on having being assured. We were given briefings on, you know, to to, to show us that the mission, the 2039 mission, was feasible with these with these characteristics and these system masses. Um, and but beyond that, we didn't, you know, we weren't really looking at it. So NASA really, as part of their statement of task, gave us these mission, these uh, system characteristics, and then NASA, and then they they said for these system characteristics, what does the committee think are going to be the biggest big challenges and the roadblocks that we face in developing either one of these systems? So they presented to us mission analysis that showed the characteristics we would have to achieve and that you could do the missions. So they showed us an NTP uh, mission analysis and they showed us NEP mission analysis that showed, you know, what were the characteristics that had to be achieved. Okay. Yeah, this, is Martin. this is Martin McLaughlin. I have a question too. Um, maybe you said it and I missed it, but what level of uh, enrichment of the fission fuels are in this analysis on chart nine? So, so this on chart nine, there was no statement about enrichment level. But uh, as part of our statement of task, which we didn't include on the chart, but you'll see in just a second, um, we were asked to assess the relative uh, challenge of HEU versus HALU, and we did that. And although <laughs> we tried to do that, but well, I, let me continue. Let me answer that question in a few minutes. Because well, at just, this just, level, at, at this level, it didn't matter. Well, it, it, it makes a big difference on the just weight. Um, and the well, it turns out that it doesn't. It turns out it does not make a big difference on the thrust to weight on the NT on on either one. Actually, there have been several studies recently that showed that for these powers and these energies, or for these thermal powers, uh, either one, it doesn't make a big difference. Uh, HALU versus HEU, and uh, that's been demonstrated recently. That is a different conclusion than was arrived at, you know, several years ago. But new reactor design, and it's been validated by the Department of Energy, and it's been validated by people at Los Alamos, 
uh, and, and various uh, companies uh, that look at this, it doesn't make a, enough of a difference. To, it's not a discriminator anymore um, from the feasibility, uh, from the math. It makes a, it does make a difference in the math, absolutely, but not enough to make a diff, make a go no go um, difference. Okay, thank you. Hello, um, this is uh, Madhu Thangavelu from the University of Southern California. Was there any discussion about uh, Vasimir in it all? Yes, and in fact, I would refer you to the report. We compared all of the – so that's why Argon is actually on chart nine as a propellant, because of Vasimir. Um, uh, so we considered uh, three primary we, – we actually looked at a variety of electric propulsion options. Uh, Vasimir was one of the electric propulsion subsystems that we looked at. We also looked at Hall thrusters, and we looked at magnetoplasma dynamic thrusters, which is why lithium is there. Hall thrusters are the krypton and xenon. Magnetoplasma dynamic thrusters are lithium, and Vasimir is argon. And you can see in the in the report, which again is available for download for free, um, our assessment of those different technologies. Thank you. Uh huh. Okay. So findings and recommendations. Um, so to get at the HEU, I'm now on chart 11, and um, HEU versus HALU, uh, high assay, low enriched, which is, again, 19.75% or thereabouts. Um, we were, in our statement of tasks, we were asked to do an assessment of these things, of these, of the relative merits of these two. And the bottom line is it was impossible to do because there has not been a comprehensive assessment for either uh, NTP or an EP and HALU versus HEU. Uh, and, and you can see our recommendation is that NASA do that. What we did learn from, as I described earlier, is that it was not a discriminator from a performance perspective, that you could design reactors using HALU that had almost as good, that had perfectly adequate performance to meet the mission requirements. Um, they might be a little bit heavier than HEU, but not significantly enough to make a difference. And so what that meant was that the, uh, the selection of HEU or HALU has, had to be done on the basis of you know, feasibility. For example, if you want to use the NERVA heritage, you would have to go back to HEU because all of the NERVA testing was done with HEU. Um, but frankly, that was over 50 years ago, and so there are lots of challenges with getting that anyway. Um, and I will say that since this study was completed, NASA has really said that their focus for a variety of reasons is going to be on HALU systems, not HEU systems. And again, that's really because it was not found to be a discriminator one way or the other. But there is no such, there is not a, um, uh, you know, we could not do this assessment because the data were not there for us to, to um, review, essentially. So moving on now to chart 12, 
It's also true, as I mentioned earlier, the committee was not tasked to do architecture trade studies. And, uh, you know, that there are, there are uh, millions of pages of architecture trade studies. Uh, and we were certainly not, in, not all that interested in adding to that, to that enormous repository of architecture trade studies as part of our committee work. Um, and so, there, there aren't recent good apples to apples trade studies comparing NEP and NTP systems for crewed missions to Mars. Uh, and we recommended that NASA do that. And NASA has been working on a couple of those, um, uh, in particular, what's called the MTAS study, uh, where they're trying to do exactly this. Um, so this is underway, but again, we were not, we asked for and were told they did not exist. Um, these trade studies. So those, again, those two conclusions, the HALU versus HEU and the trade, the architecture assessments are applied both to NTP and NEP. And so it's general. And now I was going to go into each, the, the recommendations and the discussion for each of the individual um, technologies, NTP first, and then I'll talk about NEP. And so on chart 13, we talk about um, our assessment for NTP, and that is that given the data the committee uh, was, was given to review and, and what we found in the literature and our discussions with all of the various organizations working in this field, we found that an aggressive program could develop an NTP system capable of executing the baseline mission. So it's feasible. Um, however, there's still lots of challenges. Uh, the biggest one, of course, is to develop an, an NTP system, uh, a reactor in particular, that can heat the propellant to approximately 2,700 Kelvin at the reactor exit for the duration of each burn. And each burn is typically, you know, it's going to be 10 minutes, 10 to 10 to 20 minutes long each burn. And so you're going to have to have the reactor uh, fuel, as I mentioned earlier, at probably at 2,900 to 3,000 degrees Kelvin. Um, so you also have to, of course, start the NTP system and bring it to full operating temperature in about a minute or so. So that's taking it from cold to 3,000 Kelvin in about one minute. Uh, and you can imagine the, the thermal transients and, and challenges associated with operating, stably bringing a reactor to full power in under a minute. That is just not done at all today, and it wasn't done during the NERVA days. Um, and so that's one key area of technology development. We also have to demonstrate the long-term, and again, this is three-year storage of liquid hydrogen in space with minimal loss. We also have a lot of work to do on ground test facilities. Um, ground testing, this is human-rated system. So we, the committee consensus was that we had to be able to test on the ground a full-scale, full-power NTP system on the ground. And to do that, is going to be, it's going to require a very expensive ground, uh, ground test facility. And so, uh, we did not see a way to do this with just flight tests. I know there have been proposals for, uh, subscale flight tests, 
and we did not see any way to get to human certification without full-scale, full-power, full-duration ground tests. So those were the key challenges that we found for nuclear thermal propulsion. Uh, the, that all ended up in, you know, to create the roadmap, which is summarized on chart 14. And we created this roadmap, the committee created this roadmap in the way standard, you know, the standard way that roadmaps are created. We started with the 2039 human mission and worked backwards from that with a, you know, a CDR and a PDR and the development timeframe for the human mission. And then also the cargo mission. So the cargo missions have to launch in the 2033 timeframe in order to flight qualify, so we would flight qualify the nuclear thermal propulsion system using the cargo missions. Uh, and of course, then you have the development timeframe, again, I'm walking backwards from right to left, uh, of the, you have the development of the cargo missions. And then of course, between now and the beginning of, and the, like the, the preliminary design review for the cargo mission, you have, you have to develop all of that technology. You, we have to do the fuel technology, the reactor design, the engine system development. There's a variety of different ground tests that have to happen. Um, it separate affects uh, nuclear testing. There are non-nuclear integrated tests. And of course, we, all, we always have to do the ground, we have to develop the ground test facilities and the safety analysis uh, that all needs to be done. And then you can see the trade study there, HEU versus HALU. And again, that trade study for now has been overcome by a decision at NASA headquarters to really focus on HALU. Uh, so this is the NTP roadmap. Uh, any questions on this? Okay. Then uh, again, just to remind everybody, we did spend quite a bit of time talking about the fuel, the nuclear fuel development, uh, because it's such a big challenge, um, and and it has to last for all of the burns that I mentioned earlier, six to eight burns, and go through the thermal transients, and there must not be any loss of reactor fuel material during firing. Um, again, we're going to be ground testing these engines, and so, uh, as I mentioned, the, the ground test facility will need to capture the exhaust, uh, and that's going to be a real, a real challenge. But it is, there are designs out there, and, um, I know work is, is, uh, continuing on designing these, these test facilities. They're just going to be very expensive, as you would imagine. Um, and, just to remind everybody, we got us on chart 16, we need to store liquid hydrogen for year, multiple years, right? Three years um, with minimal boil off. Uh, this is well beyond any capability that has been demonstrated to date uh, on orbit. Okay, now moving on chart 17 to the nuclear electric program, uh, propulsion system prospects for program success. This is a different kind of finding, and it's really because, as I mentioned at the very beginning, Congress has been funding nuclear thermal propulsion for the past several years uh, to the tune of about $100 million a year. It's a significant amount of money has gone into nuclear thermal propulsion over the last few years. And that contrasts to nuclear electric propulsion, which has gotten nothing. There's no, no funding going into NEP. Um, 
until a couple months ago. Um, and so certainly leading up to this report, there was essentially no funding going into nuclear electropropulsion. And as a result of that, it's unclear whether or not it's an, even an aggressive program would be able to develop an NEP system capable of executing the baseline mission in 2039. We're not saying it can't. The committee actually spent a lot of time trying to get enough data to justify changing this finding, but we could not. Um, we couldn't – so, again, we, we're not saying it can. We're not saying it can't. What we're saying is it is unclear because the data just are not there to draw a conclusion about nuclear electric propulsion. Uh, and so our recommendation was we really – NASA really needs to invigorate technology development associated with the fundamental NEP challenge, which is to scale up the operating power of each of the NEP subsystems. If you look at, at that subsystem chart that I showed for NEP earlier, each one of those subsystems is being developed today at low powers, at, you know, kilowatts of power, not megawatts of power. And so, and their elaborate, their uh, engineering units, even at at power levels, uh, quite close in a couple cases to to these uh, <clears throat> to the required power levels, depending on the system architecture. But the bottom line is, we're going to need to scale up each of the NEP subsystems and develop an NEP an integrated NEP system suitable for the baseline mission. So um, it, this is really a scaling challenge, right? It's a very different kind of challenge than it is for NTP. NTP, we have a fundamental materials challenge of developing a material that can withstand the 3,000 or 2,900 degree Kelvin reactor. And in NEP, we have a scaling challenge. Uh, now, scaling challenges are very big challenges, I, I, you know, so, and that's why we had this conclusion, uh, the findings. Um, in addition, of course, for NEP, it's got to work for multiple years, whereas NEP, NTP, I'm sorry, whereas NTP only has to work for a few hours. Uh, so very different timescales. And so you have to demonstrate an NEP system capable of operating for multiple years very reliably. And we also have to develop a large-scale chemical propulsion system that's compatible with NEP. Frankly, the committee did not feel that that second challenge was that that big a deal necessarily. I mean, it certainly was. I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big challenge, but it's not nearly the challenge of the nuclear system. So the challenge is on the nuclear side, not the chemical side, but we had to acknowledge that there is this big challenge with the, with the chemical side. So moving on now to the NEP roadmap. Um, we, again, developed this exactly the same way, starting in 2039 and moving backwards. You'll see the timing is very similar for the two. But what the big difference between the – on chart 18, the NEP roadmap and the NTP roadmap is the number of different technologies that need to be developed. And that's because each of the subsystems requires significant scale-up and significant work. And so NEP has this complexity piece that needs to be faced. It's a scaling problem and a complexity challenge, uh, as opposed to NTP, where it's a 
fundamental materials challenge. So moving on now to chart 19, sort of picking up the pace a little bit. Um, so developing an, NE, an EP system would require increasing power levels by order of magnitude uh, relative to current um, ground-based technology demonstrations that exist out there. And if NASA plans to apply NEP technology, uh, we really need to accelerate uh, NEP technology development. Um, chart 20 is uh, just a summary of the major challenges for NTP and NEP. And again, you can see the contrast. Uh, for NTP, we don't really need to change the scale that much because, you know, with NERVA, we already tested at this kind of scale, but we never met the operating requirements for these human Mars missions. NERVA never never demonstrated a 900-second specific impulse exhaust velocity. They got up to about 850 seconds. But that difference is significant um, from a material science perspective. Um, the rapid startup, and again, I'm not, I, we've already talked about all of these challenges, but you can see how they're very different between NTP and NEP, and that was one of the, the clear conclusions of the committee, that it's really hard to say given which, given what we know today, it's not even possible to down-select because there's, there's just a lot of uncertainty. There's too much risk in both technologies, in either technologies, I should say, in order to down-select today in the committee's consensus. So moving on to chart 21, NEP and NTP commonalities. Um, obviously, reactor fuels, materials, uh, um, there are various different uh, moderator uh, control system technologies. Um, there's obviously cryogenic fuel fluid management. Uh, modeling and simulation is a big area that when you compare today to even 20 years ago, uh, there's been huge progress in modeling and simulation of these systems, and we strongly recommended that NASA make an investment in modeling and simulation of these systems, testing, regulatory approvals, so there's a lot of commonality, and some of that work can proceed independently of a selection, uh, either NTP or NEP. Um, a lot of this work should should proceed. Um, and then on chart 22, we summarize some findings and recommendations, again, for modeling and simulation, ground testing, and flight testing. Um, as I just said, extensive investments in modeling and simulation. We will need ground and flight qualification testing. So ground testing and flight qualification testing will be required. For NTP systems, as I mentioned, it's got to be integrated system tests at full scale and full thrust. And that's because of the human certification process. You have to look for, you have to be able to do post-test inspection and make sure that you can do, you, you, you can identify incipient failures. And for the throughputs of these large human-rated systems, you just can't do that. If, I mean, it doesn't make sense to do it in space. And we tried. We tried to find a way, and we could not. For NEP systems, by contrast, there there are mod there are probably ways. The committee felt pretty strongly that that we could break it up into modules by appropriately uh, defining these system interfaces and doing subscale uh, modular, not, I'm sorry, not subscale, full-scale subsystem tests. Um, 
And, and that's a very important distinction, actually, from a ground testing uh, perspective. And then we recommended that NASA consider using the cargo missions for flight qualification rather than um, rather than having separate flight qualification because um, they're going to be multiple cargo missions. And it seemed like you know, the major implication of doing that was just that you had to do the cargo missions early enough. The first cargo mission had to go early enough to make sure that you could incorporate any lessons learned. But again, the ground test program will be so extensive that hopefully there won't be too many of those. Um, chart 23 addresses some other questions that we got from NASA uh, regarding uh, synergies with other uh, ongoing programs. Uh, there's a huge amount of work, uh, and even today or yesterday, there was a press release about a new HALU uh, industrial source, HALU production source that just went in uh, to support uh, terrestrial microreactors. And it turns out the test terrestrial microreactors are being built to the same size scale with HALU as is needed for NEP reactors. And so there's a <clears throat> we found there potentially could be quite a bit of synergy um, there. And similarly, some of you may be aware that DARPA is currently in phase one or in the first phase of a NTP uh, system development. Um, called the Draco program. And so obviously there's some synergy there. It's a very different thrust level, but it's got a lot of the same, you know, it's got 900 second specific impulse. So you're going to have some of the same materials problems or challenges uh, that we would have for the NASA program. So again, we recommended that NASA seek uh, opportunities for collaboration and I know that they are. So that's actually ongoing. And the last chart <clears throat> is just to remind everybody that for all of the challenges that I have listed in this presentation, both systems or either systems show great potential to facilitate the human exploration of Mars. I, you know, there are those who feel strongly that there are some chemical options and there are potentially some chemical options for the human exploration of Mars, but, um, they're much more limited in their mission opportunities, extremely limited in their mission opportunities, and they require tremendous infrastructure <clears throat> uh, in Mars orbit, on the surface of Mars, um, in order to be, in order to, uh, you know, enable a chemical system. So the nuclear systems really give you a lot more mission flexibility um, and, and capability. Um, but either system will require an aggressive R&D program. And we really have to start that with an objective architecture assessment over this coming year um, and making a significant set of technology investments in both NTP and NEP in order to enable a, a, um, an informed down select. Right now, we could not make an informed down, the committee tried, we could not find a way to make an informed down select at this point, given what we know today. And so we strongly encouraged NASA to invest in both technologies, both systems, NEP and NTP, uh, in order to allow an informed down select in the next, you know, two to four years. And that's my presentation, and I apologize. Um, 
went a little long. Any final questions? Yeah. Um, Roger, terrific. Uh, this is excellent. I've got a couple of questions. This is Harley. Moderator always gets to um, have the option of asking the first questions, but they're probably pretty quick. And we can run a little bit past the hour if your schedule permits. First of all, did you do or are you aware of any um, cost estimates for the, the, the type of well, the architectures that you estimate here, at least the engines? And is, are they plausible estimates of the cost? And then the second question is probably an easier one. You mentioned in a couple of cases the, um, that uh, you'll be um, preceding the human mission with cargo missions. Um, probably a good idea, pre-emplacement, we've all heard about and so on. Or are those cargo missions, in your thinking, necessary to support the return of the, the um, human mission? So they're both pretty pretty easy uh, questions to answer because we did not – we specifically stayed away from cost. So, no, we did not do any cost estimates. I believe NASA is <clears throat> is doing some, some cost estimating, um, certainly like things for the ground test facilities for NTP and for NEP. And so there, there are various cost estimates, but the committee itself did not. And, in fact, we very purposely stayed away from that, and NASA confirmed we should stay away from it. So no cost uh, insights. And then on the other one, um, again, we did not. We were. We didn't look at architectures, mission architectures. There, as you know, Harley, because because I've in fact, in fact spoken about pre-placement of return propellant and things like that. Um, there are various architectures that look at that option of pre-placing Earth return propellant in the orbit of Mars in order to change the architecture in order to um, uh, enable other other features of the of a mission. Um, but again, we did not look at that. Um, in my personal opinion, um, you know there there's a risk, a, a cost risk trade uh, that that needs to happen. and um, that's part of the reason why one of our recommendations was NASA really needs to look at the architecture in more detail. Um, we did not do that assessment. We were very focused on the, you know, the merits, risks, and challenges of each of the two nuclear propulsion technologies. Okay, good. Um, Sorry, now, I know that's, that's, that's not a satisfying. Sorry, that, I know that's not a satisfying answer, but it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Okay, folks, uh, we have time for a couple of quick questions and quick answers. Does anybody have quick questions? Quick question. Uh, uh, Roger, uh, this is Madhu Thangavelu from USC again. Um, can you quickly detail why that one-minute um, rise in temperature in the reactor is critical to make this work? Because in a propulsion system, you're essentially, you know, if you have a 10-minute burn, then, and, and you're spending one minute of that 10 minutes at a specific impulse, an average specific impulse, let's say you have a linear ramp up of temperature, it goes from cold 
to hot to 3000 Kelvin over that one minute. So your, your average temperature there is half that. So your specific impulse is something in the 450, 500 seconds for that time. And so you have to, your, your mission, uh, uh, assessment, your, your total, your, your burn average specific impulse will be reduced by that lower performance for that minute. Okay, it's it's really about about uh, ISV and uh, uh, correct, okay. absolutely, yes. it yes. is. It's about yes. wasting propellant at yes. lower performance. Okay, great, thanks. Quick, quick question on the uh, cryogenic requirements. What would you see, sort of Barbara? Did you look at um, nuclear uh, small nuclear reactor? Um, it's a, so it's kind of a nuclear electric but to drive a cryocooler to keep the uh, tanks cold for the NTP system. Yeah, so we actually were presented with a couple of different options for that, and there's actually an option of just using small solar arrays, which also makes sense uh, or could make sense. Uh, the arrays are not that large. You don't need that much of a cryocooler. But nobody has ever built a large hydrogen tank uh, and kept it uniformly cold for three years um, with a cryocooler. Nobody's done that. NASA is currently investing in that. In fact, there's a significant there's significant programs ongoing today uh, in addressing that uh, propellant storage requirement. But it has not been done, so it re it remains a risk. And whether or not you would certainly have a, a refrigerator, a, a cryocooler of one sort or another. You might power it with a small reactor. Frankly, most people today say just use a small solar array, and that's much simpler. So, in fact, if you look at some of the recent papers, again, I call out Russ Joyner's papers because I'm very familiar with them. We used to be colleagues before I left Aerojet Rocketdyne. Um, Russ has done a great job of sizing that. But there are still real challenges in that three-year storage requirement at 20 Kelvin. Thank you. Hey, Roger, quick question. Um, uh, this is Bruce Campbell. I actually did uh, a little bit of that Draco study with uh, Tabitha Dodson, and I'm sure oh, she cool. brought some of, she probably brought some of that info into the uh, committee Absolutely. meetings. Yeah. She did. Yeah. But, um, you know, Draco is thinking about the possibility of going ahead and flying uh, a reactor without doing a ground test beforehand. If, if they did that, would that help with NASA uh, qualifying a similar reactor for, uh, for human spaceflight? It would certainly help in some ways. It would help from a regulatory perspective. It would be a great pathfinder, and it would reduce the perceived risk. But it would not substitute, it couldn't substitute for the ground, full, powerful thrust ground testing. And that's because of the human rating requirements. I mean, the problem with, and, and again, when you think about these systems, they are, you know, many tons of hydrogen throughput for each of the engines. And you're talking about probably a total propellant load on the order of, you know, 60 to 100, uh, tons. Uh, you're talking about three engines. And again, I refer you to the papers. Don't quote me on the exact numbers. But these are very big systems for these human missions. And 
in order to get humans certified, you have to be able to demonstrate that you have no uh, no incipient failures and throughout the entire operating uh, requirement of the of the mission. And to do that, you have to be able to operate for the full throughput with margin. To do that in space is going to be extraordinarily expensive because you're going to have to essentially duplicate, you know, with one engine and probably two engines, what you have to do for the actual mission. And and so, it, you know, we could not convince ourselves of a way to get human human rating for engines with just flight tests. But that doesn't mean that there isn't value in flight tests. Of course, there's value in flight tests. It just yeah. isn't a replacement for the flight test. For the, I'm sorry, it's not a replacement for the ground test. And as soon as you say it's not a replacement for the ground test, then you start asking, well, if you're going to have to do the ground test anyway, why are we paying all this money for a flight test? Right, right, right. So, and, and do you think there would be any significant differences between the reactor uh, system for a uh, human-rated system versus a, a, a you know, a, a DOD non-human mission? Well, there certainly will be large-scale differences because the Draco program, as you know, is a much lower thrust system, so it's a much smaller system than this. Um, other than that, uh, there are going to be some differences just because, you know, unfortunately, things like thermal expansion don't, you know, you, you can't, you know, the, the, the way they scale with size and thermal stresses don't scale all that well with size necessarily, which means that fracture mechanics are going to have to be redone. I mean, again, I'm not saying it's not super valuable. It is very valuable from a risk perspective, risk reduction perspective, but you can't, you are a long ways from getting all the way there. And in fact, in the report, we talk about various things that will not scale very well. There's some fluid mechanics of the hydrogen passing through, you know, what happens, uh, you know, the heat transfer rates in the hydrogen are very high and there's some fluid instabilities that were actually observed during the NERVA testing that caused uh, big chunks of reactor to come out the nozzle. Um, which is a very bad thing um, yes. <laughs> um, during the NERVA testing. They solved those problems, but how that how those problems will scale and change as we get the reactor hotter and we change the materials in the reactor, we just do not know. We don't know those answers today. And so, and I, again, I think the Draco program is super valuable. It just doesn't get us all the way there. And I was just curious as to whether or not there would be any differences in, like, redundancies and radiation shielding and things like that between the, the human and the uh, uh, DOD kind of missions. Um, probably, although, again, there are the shielding requirements. I mean, there's going to be a lot of infrastructure. There are going to be modeling, cap modeling and simulation capabilities. Uh, there are going to be – there's a lot of stuff that the Draco program will definitely help a lot with. And the fundamental – materials work because Draco is requiring 900 second specific impulse also. And so that means you have to get the reactor fuel to the same temperature. It's just, you can't, you, there's a lot of work to go from a Draco sized reactor at 3000 Kelvin to a 
25,000-pound thrust reactor at 3,000 Kelvin. That's not an easy transition is my only – is my real point. But there are a tremendous number of synergies um, between the two, which is why we strongly encourage NASA to work closely with the DRACO program. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. I think we have to we have to wrap it up now. That was a terrific presentation. And thank you for all the and thank you all in the audience for the for the terrific questions. All right. Yeah, it was great. And I would also encourage you again, download the report and then you can email me with questions. Um if you have more questions or want to follow yes. up, feel free to email me and, and it and again there are a lot of things that I might just pass on to a committee member, or you might know committee members. Um, you feel free to to reach out to them, of course. But download the report and go through it. There's a lot more detail in the report um, than we were able to cover today. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel, at The Economy Space, to contact us, or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others. Discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Thank you.